Thank you, Clint. You all sounded marvelous this morning listening to you sing praises to God. Listen, if you're visiting with us this morning, we want to tell you that we are so thankful that you have come our way. If this is the first time you have come to a Church of Christ and you have any questions about anything that you have seen or heard or the way that we have gone about worshiping God or maybe even the lesson that I'm going to be sharing with you this morning, certainly feel free to uh, talk to me at, and, uh, after services about those things and I'll try to give you an answer. And if I don't have an answer for you, maybe I can either direct you to someone who does or maybe I can just, we can sit down and study together and come to a, an answer through the scriptures. And so anyway, we're glad that you are here with us this morning. Before I get into the lesson, let me just make the congregation aware of several things. Remember that we have LTC that is just right around the corner in, in April. This year they're going to be studying out of Matthew and the theme is, uh, don't worry, I got this. And, and so we have over 25 of our young people that are involved in this um, leadership and training in Christ uh, competition and they're already studying on it. So please be praying for them as well as for their coaches. I know they'll appreci appreciate that. John McCarthy is the contact if you have any questions about LTC. And then secondly, let me just remind you about our Mountain States Children's Home mission trip that we do. That's going to be at June the 23rd through the 30th. And I know that that's quite a ways off, but Jared is the one who is leading that effort. And he's asked me to let you know about that so that you can start making commitments toward that so that he can get transportation and lodging and all the things that go in. There's a lot of moving parts that goes to this mission trip. And so if you're interested in that and going on that trip, uh, either as a chaperone or as a team participant, then talk with Jared and he can kind of get those things set up for you and we can be on our way, okay? Okay, so let me just begin the question by the service or the uh, sermon by asking this question. What kind of things do you like to read? There's all kinds of things out there to read. Some people, when they read, they read for fun or or for entertainment. You can go anywhere in the world reading. You can uh, go through all kinds of adventures through just reading of books or reading of magazines. Uh, then some people, when they read, they read for knowledge. They want to gain a, a wealth of knowledge, and so that's what they get into. One person said, you know, the things that I like to read are the things that interest me. I like to read about music. I like to read about politics, about people, etc. And mostly she said, I like to read magazines. I'm not sure what those magazines were, but she said, I like to read for that purpose. So you have, you know, you have these sizzling kinds of books that you like to read, sizzling romances or uh, mysteries that are really enthralling, that are, are enjoyable. Or maybe you like reading things like Popular Mechanics or Sports Illustrated or uh, Consumer Reports, or maybe you like to read the People's Magazine or People Magazine to find out information about individuals and people. People, like I said, read for a lot of reasons. Some people like to just get on the internet and surf around and to, from one topic to the next, kind of like a hummingbird that goes from one feeder to the next or one flower to the next. You just like to hit on a lot of different kinds of subjects, but seldom with not much depth in it. And so when you talk about reading, sometimes we read for entertainment. Sometimes we read for knowledge. We read those sizzling romances. We read the books of information like Popular Mechanics. We read those things, and for a while, you know, they might enthrall our minds. They might entertain us. They might, might be something that we just enjoy reading uh, through. But what does it say when it comes down to, to terms of knowledge? What is the most important thing to know when it comes to knowledge? And my answer to that is that there's nothing more important in the world than knowing Jesus. Now, whether you want that or not, or whether you agree with that or not, it, it doesn't matter. 
Knowing Jesus is so important when it comes down to living the abundant life or certainly when it comes down to living the life beyond this grave. I'm talking about eternity now. Knowing Jesus is all important when it comes to those kinds of things in our lives. And so obviously for this year, I chose as a theme for 2023, knowing Jesus, because I really do believe that it is so important. As we began the series, I started last week by asking this question, what's the difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus? Because there's a huge difference between the two. And we said when it comes to knowing about Jesus, we know about Jesus from the things that we have heard. It might be a movie that we saw or a TV series that we saw about Jesus, or it might be you went to a lectureship or a class, or maybe it's a sermon like this that you've heard some things about Jesus. So we hear about Jesus. Then, of course, we talked about learning about Jesus. You can study things about Jesus. You can take classes about Jesus. Uh, You can get on the Internet and surf around and learn about Jesus. So that's taking in a lot of knowledge about what Jesus is about. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you know Jesus. Remember, we looked at Matthew, or at least I quoted Matthew, the seventh chapter, verses 21 through 23. And there Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So how are you able to do the will of the Father if you don't have the knowledge of what that will is about that's found within the pages of the scriptures? So he says that he that is the will of my Father is in heaven. Many would say to me on that, Lord, 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 do we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name do many wonderful deeds and then I'll say to you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, you people of your own standards. I never knew you. So that tells me that it's really easy to know about Jesus to the point that it motivates us to do things but not really know Jesus, and certainly not him, know us. So knowing Jesus is really important. So we talked about, well, what does it mean to know Jesus? And I said to you, to know Jesus is not only to have a knowledge about who he is, but it's also to experience a relationship with him. And all relationships begin with a meeting of a person. And so we looked at Paul the Apostle when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He wasn't saved. What he knew about Jesus is what he had heard or what he had learned about him. But now he's confronted with him uh, personally. Now he has met him. And he says, you know, who are you? And Jesus said, I'm the one that you are persecuting. I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now he's met him. He goes to Damascus. He meets Ananias. Ananias talks to him, tells him what God's intention for his life for Paul is going to be. And then he says to Paul, what are you waiting for now? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And that's exactly what Paul did. That's recorded over in Acts, the ninth chapter, in verse uh, uh, 19. And then over in Acts, the 22nd chapter, in verse 16, that narrative of Paul's conversion. So now he's in a relationship with Jesus because of the obedience of his faith to the gospel. But it didn't start stop there with Paul. There is a process by how we grow into a greater knowledge of Jesus and a greater relationship with him. And so we looked at Philippians 3, verses 10 and 11, very briefly, and there Paul says, I want to know Christ. Wait a second, Paul, that you said you knew Christ or met Christ on the road to Damascus. Yes, I did. I was baptized into Christ, but I want to know more about him. I want to know about his suffering. I want to know about his death. I want to be conformed to that. I want to know more about his resurrection. I want to know Jesus more and more and more. So that was Paul's quest. That's our quest. Our quest is to continue to know more and more about Jesus. 
Now, how do we go about knowing Jesus? I mean, where do you start? Well, obviously, I just showed you that slide behind me that says the Gospel of John's a great way to start. You know, in my experience over the years, people have come up to me, say, at the beginning of the year, and they're wanting to read their Bibles more. And so they said to me, Richard, you know, where should I start reading my Bible? Should I start in Genesis and just start moving forward? And I say, what? yeah, you can start with Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And like, you know, like was stated earlier in our, our Bible class, Clint said, you know, by the time you get to Leviticus, you kind of go, wow, this is weighty stuff. You know, so sometimes you get there and you just stop. There are some books that I wouldn't start with. I wouldn't start with Lamentations. <laughs> I wouldn't start with Revelation. I mean, I, when I was a new Christian, I tried that. I read Revelation, scared me to death because I didn't know any of that, what that stuff is about. But anyway, but I wouldn't start there. But where I would probably start is I would start with the Gospel of John. So what's my reasoning behind the Gospel of John? Because that's where we're going to take the majority of our lessons. We're going to do excursions into the other Gospels, but we're going to try to camp a little bit in the Gospel of John for the year because I think there's so much knowledge that is there. But the Gospel of John is great because it emphasizes the deity of Jesus. Every page of John is ablaze with Jesus being God or some aspect of his deity that is really related to and. And, and John, he shares with us seven signs that are designed to bring a person towards their belief, a solid belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. So when you read John's gospel, you realize that you're standing on holy ground, almost like, you know, like uh, Moses did when he saw the burning bush. And God says, you're standing on holy ground, take off your sandals. That's almost like what John is like. For some people, when they look at, at John, it feeds the mind, it nourishes the soul, it brings them closer. So that's why I chose John. I just think John is an intimate uh, book or writing that brings you close to Jesus and his deity and who he, he is. I'm not saying that Matthew and Mark and Luke are not great Books, they're all biographies of the life of Jesus, and they're great places to start. And if you chose there, that's okay. I chose John. That's, I'll just be honest. I, that's just my personal opinion. That's just kind of who I am at my point in, in my life. I don't know if I'd been there when I was a baby Christian, you know, but that's where I am now. And so that's where I encourage people to go to get to know Jesus uh, better. And so the Gospel of John. So here's what I'm going to do this morning. I just want to set the stage for you so you can see, uh, in my mind, the beauty of the Gospel of John and how it has so many wonderful things. And we want to start by looking at the background of the book itself. When you look at John, John is a very simple book. You wouldn't think it is. You know, it's got 21 chapters. That thing is not simple. It's a simple book. It, you know, it seldom ever uses words that are over three syllables long, mostly one and two uh, syllables. The book begins by saying, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. And then he goes on to tell you that he's the creator of the world. But it starts out very simple. It's, it's simple, uh, it's, it's straight to the point, but it's sublime. It's, it's wonderful in that kind of way. John likes to use his contrast. He likes to contrast light and dark. He likes to contrast life and, and death, spirit and flesh. The other aspect of John that I think is different from, say, the others is this. John's style is that of, of use, not using a running like video camera that chronolo uh, chronologically lays out the life of Jesus in a meticulous kind of way. It just doesn't do that. So it's not like the other Gospels that are very conformed to that. They're very meticulous in trying to chronologically follow Jesus' life. Rather, what he does is he presents more of a thematic scrapbook, more of a, a snapshot of the various angles 
of Jesus' life that's different from the other. And so you'll see themes like life and light and love and belief that are huge in the gospel of John. How big are they? Well, take, for instance, life. Life, the word life, is, it's zoe. It's, it's not bios, but zoe. It, it's a word that transcends the physical and spiritual. It's, it's both of those wrapped up in one. For instance, Jesus says, I came that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. He didn't say, I came that you might have physical life, biological life. I came that you might have a higher quality of life that is abundant. I am the way, the truth, and the life. In him was life, and life was the light of the world, verse 3 says of John, the first chapter. Light, the word light is used 30 times. I am the way, the truth, or, or I am the light of the world. In him was life, and the life was the light of the, the world. Love, a new commandment I give you, that you are to love one another even as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, and a man lay down his life for his friends. So this word love in the English is used a lot in there. Sometimes the vast majority is agape, sometimes it's philia. But by the vast majority, it's going to be this agape, this very sacrificial kind of love. And the word belief or believe is used over 98 times. So that tells you that the Gospel of John is very thematic and that these are important things for us to uh, know about Jesus. Here's the question that I would ask of myself is, okay, well, then Richard, why are there four Gospels? Why can't there just be, you know, one, just be one definitive biography of, of Christ rather than four separate accounts? And the answer to that is very simplistic because a picture is more complete when looking at it from several different angles. So how many of you guys watched uh, football yesterday or have watched football? Well, if you watch football or if you watch Major League Baseball or whether you watch NBA or whatever you watch, uh, instant replay is a huge thing. And in instant replay, they're all looking at the various angles, the player, the coach, the referee, the fans, the television cameras. They're all looking at the same play from a dozen different kinds of angles because they're wanting to get it right. They're wanting to do the right thing. So they look at the possible, the fullest possible picture of a play from all different kinds of angles to, in order to come up with the right kind of call. An instant replay. And that's kind of what you see when you look at the, the Gospels. You see all kinds of angles of the life of Jesus. Or take, for instance, famous people. Now, as you look at some of these people behind me, you'll recognize a number of their faces. So how would you learn, or, or learn to know about them to mo the most? Well, the best way is to get a number of perspectives of what kind of defines who they are. So a biography, a famous, a famous person is not really complete unless we have the accounts from all perspectives. For instance, from their parents, from their mate, from their children, and so on. So from a mate of a person, they would see them as their sweetheart. The parent would see them as a son or as a daughter. The son or daughter would see them as a parent. They'd see them as mommy or, or daddy. So you have those different kinds of perspectives of that per person's life in order to get maybe a clearer picture of what that person is. And that's what you have when you talk about the Gospels. They simply are the writer's uh, own uh, angle. They look at their distinct angle of how they are seeing Jesus. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Before Gospel, you have Matthew's angle. 
So what is Matthew's angle that makes him different from the other three? Well, he's writing to the Jews. That's his target audience, is the Jews. Not the Gentiles. His target, I know, I know that, you know, it's, we all read it now, okay? But it was originally targeted at the Jews. His purpose was to establish the regal rights of Jesus, the Messiah, as the king of the Jews. That's what, they want to, that's what he's wanting to drive at his audience. And so as you begin, Matthew, you'll begin with reading the genealogy. It's not there just to bore you to death. The genealogies there is there in order to point you backward to Abraham, which was the father of the faith, and David, who was a king. So he is lining up these two prominent figures in order that they may be able to look at Jesus and say, Jesus is the king. A number of years ago, I preached a series of sermons here called the Manifesto of the King, the Rules of the Kingdom. And that's what Matthew chapter 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, really is about. It's about establishing Jesus as the Messiah, establishing Jesus as the king with the rules that are there. And so that's a very simplistic kind of overview of Matthew, but that's his angle. His angle is to convince his readers Jesus is king. Jesus is the Messiah. Remember when he wrote over Matthew, the 16th or 18th chapter, or 16th chapter and verse 16, he says, who do people say the son of man is? And they said, where you're you are John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. See the, the idea there? Then there is Mark's angle. In Mark's angle, there's no genealogy. But why is that? Because his letter is written to the Romans. He's written to the Roman mind. What was the Roman mind about? The Roman mind was, was the idea of capturing power. That's what they were. The Roman Empire was very aggressive, very power-driven. So in Mark's gospel, he goes just from one, he doesn't do any genealogy because Romans don't care about genealogies. They certainly don't care about Jewish genealogies. And so he doesn't do any of that. What he does is he goes from one miracle to the next, to the next, to the next, in very rapid fashion, showing the power of Jesus. But not just the power of Jesus, something else. For instance, over Mark, the second chapter, you hear, have the healing or the miracle of the healing of the paralytic. And in the healing of the paralytic, he's showing his power over that kind of malady. But not just that, he says, in order that you know that I have the authority to do this, you know, and that I have the authority to forgive sins, I say to this man, arise and walk. So he is claiming not only power, but authority and power so much so that he can forgive people's sins. That's incredible. That's why the thief on the cross is able to say, today you'll be with me in paradise. Why? Because I had the authority to do that. I have the authority to do that in your case. So Matthew, Mark's idea is just showing power and Jesus being a great servant. Then there's Luke's angle. Luke's angle is different. His angle is primarily writing to the Greek mind, the Gentile mind and audience. And his deal is to show the humanity of Jesus. But here's the thing about that. Think about how he uses his genealogy. His genealogy is different from Matthew's genealogy because his genealogy takes Jesus and it goes all the way back to Adam, the first man, who was not a Jew, who was not a Hebrew. He was the first human being. And so what John Luke does is he ties us all the way, Jesus all the way back to the very first man saying that Jesus is not just Savior of the Jews. He's Savior of all man, mankind. And not only that, he's the one that talks most about the humanity of Jesus. One of the things I have loved about that uh, TV series, The Chosen, is to see Jesus 
in a human kind of a way. I know the actor's not Jesus, but I love the portrayal of Jesus being human and his apostles being human like me, human beings, you know, and, and so I've loved watching him laugh, and I've loved watching him have kind of joke a little bit in one-liners, but I love the way he's so honest with the people and caring for the people. It's, it's incredible in that way. Luke does the same thing. Luke is the only one that talks about the Garden of Gethsemane, one of the hugest moments in the life of Jesus where he decided whether he is going to go to the cross or not the Garden of Gethsemane, his beating on the porch, you know, when he is beaten with a cat of nine tails, his, there's, he's much more detailed about his crucifixion, he's detailed about his resurrection, so there's a lot of human detail in the Gospel of, of Luke. The three put together is what is called the synopsis, soon, which soon, was broken down two words, soon, and then opsis, which means uh, seeing together, and so what the idea is, these three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they record or reflect some of the same stories, some of the same events, some of the same teachings of Jesus. For instance, in, in John's Gospel, there are no mentions of the parables, a huge section of Jesus' teaching, no mention of the, God, the Sermon on the Mount, a huge section of, of teaching. But in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you see the chronological of Jesus' life being shown to us through a chronological kind of, of way as they address different kinds of audiences. Okay, so here's why I like John. John, um, when you look at his angle, John's gospel is, wrote, is written in kind of a, a, a timeless, universal audience. It's, it's for everyone. More than all the other writers, he stresses the deity of Christ and his, and his unique relationship with the Father that gets him into all kinds of trouble because he claims to have a relationship with the Father and that the Father, that God is his Father. So you see that in, in John's angle. Uh, you'll see different things like he is God. Uh, think, about, think about verse 1 alone. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And God was the Word. And then you look at John four, 1 and verse 14 and the Word became flesh. God becomes flesh. So it's got, it's got some sublime things like that in the Gospel of John. So he is God. He is betrayed as the true uh, king. He is the servant par excellence. I mean, when you look at Jesus in the very shadow of the cross, I mean, he's in the very shadow. The night that he's going to be arrested in the darkness of Gethsemane is going to be led to Annas and to Caiaphas and to Herod. He's going to be beaten and ridiculed and mocked. He will be beaten with a cat of nine tails. Even with all that in view of what's going to happen to him, in verse 13 it says, having known, uh, having known that his end had come, he loved his own to the very end. And one of the greatest examples of how he loved them was he was a servant and washed their feet. None of the others were going to do that. But Jesus, the Son of God, washed feet. And so he is the servant par excellence. Uh, he is the quintessential man. He is everything that man was created to be. We've all fallen. He has not. But we are created to have this incredible relationship with, with God. He is the Christ who never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and on in the future forever. He'll always be the same. But there's a practicality to him as well. There are times when we need to realize that he is the king and that we are not. He's the one who's in control, 
We are not. We need to remind, be reminded of it. Times when we need him to rule firmly and decisively in our, our lives, where he lets us know what, the, what is expected of us, that he is the good shepherd. And as a good shepherd, we are to follow him. Other moments, we need him to wash our feet and teach us how to, by example, how we are to serve others. Sometimes we need to realize that he was once a man like us, that he hurt, and that he got tired, and that he got hungry like us, that he was a human man. He was the God man. He was the son of man, while at the same time being the son of God. There's times when we need to see him as the God and the creator and sustainer of the universe, and that he is in control of all things. It's not the Republicans. It's not the Democrats. It's God is the one that's in control of all things, and sometimes we just need to remind ourselves of that and King Jesus helps us do that and at all times we need to see him as the savior of our souls that he is the important one and that he is the one that is concerned about that's well that's why he came to the earth in order to die for our sins so what's his motive what's John's motive well John 20 verses 30 through 31 now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of these disciples which are not written in this book but these have been written that you may believe that jesus is the christ the son of god and that by believing in him you might have life in his name so so john is very selective in the way he recorded the life of jesus and so he screens he structures his material uh, that is designed to bring people to an irrefutable conclusion that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the idea of John. John's gospel was written that you might believe this. That's his motive. He wants people to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, I know Matthew wants the same thing. I know Mark wants the same thing. I know Luke wants the same thing. But John is very specific about how he approaches it different than the other three. His motive is, is having led them to the Son of God, he would have them drink of the living water that he talked to the woman at Samaria about, the well of Samaria about. And to eat of the living bread when he, you know, fed the 5,000, then later says, I am the living bread that has come down out of heaven. You need to partake of, of me. And we brought to God. What's his method? What's John's method? Well, his method is found in the same passage that we read about his, his motive. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. These seven signs are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that believing in that fact, you'll have life in his name. So he talks about a sign. A sign is an act or a miracle that is pregnant with meaning. It's to bring us to a, a conclusion. So it's a display of Jesus' supernatural power that is demonstrated to demonstrate that Jesus is God. Because human beings don't walk on water. Have you tried walking on water lately? Jesus walked on water. Have you tried, tried changing water into wine? Jesus changed water into wine. You ever said to a man, pick up your pallet and walk? Jesus told a man, pick up your pallet and walk. And so you have these signs that are there designed to point people to God and to increase a person's belief in Jesus Christ. There are the seven signs. Those seven signs are in the gospel of, of John. The changing of water into wine, the healing of an official's son in Capernaum. That's a, a, um, a synagogue official, a rabbi. The healing of an invalid at the pool of Bethsaida. 
the feeding of the 5,000, the walking on water, healing the blind man, raising Lazarus from the dead. And some would say, well, even the one where Jesus himself arose from the dead is certainly a big one. So these seven signs are there for us. John's intent, as I close, okay, John's intent is not to write an epic of the life of Jesus. I don't think the other three were either, but his intent was not to write a complete epic. In fact, he, he says so. He says, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. I mean, there are so many things that Jesus did in the three years of his life and before that are not written in Matthew, in Mark, or Luke, and certainly not in John. So John has an audience, and you're the audience. And he has recorded seven signs that would bring you to a strong belief that Jesus Christ is more than just a man, but that he is the Son of, of God. John will talk about life. He will talk about light. He'll talk about love. He'll talk about belief. Belief. Those are his themes. And that's what we'll be looking over this coming year. So John's purpose is to hold Jesus up so that we can see his glorious light and come out of the darkness to know Jesus more perfectly, more personally. That's what we're going to be looking at in this quest over this next year. And then we're going to be reading the Gospel of John. And so, listen, there's 21 chapters in the Gospel of John. And so, uh, if you want to get a, ahead of me, you can do that and just start reading John. And then I'll just break it down for you as we go along uh, with our lessons to discover how incredible Jesus is and how he and the Father wants us to have a personal relationship with him that goes beyond just learning, that goes beyond just hearing, but settles within our soul and with our hearts in a very experiential kind of way that we can know Jesus as our Savior, as our friend, as the Son of God. So here's the question this morning as we end, and that is, do you know Jesus? Do you know him? And by that I mean, have you entered into a relationship with him? We've talked about how that happens. We know how Paul did it on the day of Pentecost or on the, uh, in Damascus, we know how they did it on the day of Pentecost when 3,000 were baptized in the Christ. That's how you begin your relationship with him. You, gotta know, you don't have to know everything. You'll come to know everything as you move along in your life. So if you need to respond this morning, we'd encourage you to do so, okay? While together we stand, and while we sing, won't you come?